Welcome to PQ Doc on Call, a podcast dedicated to current and aspiring intensivists. My name is Pradeep Kamat. And my name is Rahul Demania, and we are coming to you from Children's Healthcare of Atlanta, Emory University School of Medicine. Today's episode is dedicated to the approach of the unstable neonate. We are delighted to be joined by Dr. Michael Wolfs, Associate Professor of Pediatrics at Emory University School of Medicine. Dr. Wolf is also the Associate Medical Director of the Cardiac Intensive Care Unit at Children's Healthcare of Atlanta. The Cardiac Intensive Care Unit at Children's Healthcare of Atlanta is one of the highest volume pediatric heart centers in the nation. Dr. Wolf is also the chair of the You Matter program at Children's Healthcare of Atlanta, which addresses physician resilience and second victim syndrome in providers. I will now turn it over to Rahul to start with our patient case. A four-day-old former full-term neonate delivered via C-section for non-reassuring fetal heart tones is to be discharged from the well-child nursery. On day of discharge, the child is noted to have progressive tachypnea, tachycardia, and progressive acrocyanosis. Extremities are cool, and the child has delayed capillary refill. Pulse oximetry is notable for a discordance between upper and lower extremity saturations. Femoral pulses are poorly palpable. A blood gas is significant for metabolic acidosis. The patient is rushed to the NICU and the process to transfer the baby to a pediatric cardiac intensive care facility is initiated. Dr. Wolf, we are very excited to have you on today's podcast to discuss the approach to an unstable neonate. Thank you for having me on Pick You Doc on Call. I have no relevant financial disclosures. Our case today highlights an undifferentiated, unstable neonate. And the key objective of today's podcast is to really develop a mental model on how to approach an unstable child less than 90 days. We will divide this podcast into some important sections. Number one, we'll talk about anatomic and physiologic considerations for a neonate. We'll talk about initial investigations. And finally, a management framework on how to really stabilize a child with a focus on congenital heart disease. Dr. Wolf, let's start with the important considerations which you keep in mind for the neonatal or infant population. I would like to divide these into a few categories and really stick with the traditional airway, breathing, and circulation model. Common things being common, airway is the first thing to think about in the unstable infant. The infant airway is prone to dynamic obstruction and is poorly tolerant of mucosal edema. Infants' tongues are proportionally larger and their epiglottis and soft tissues are much more compliant. And this large epiglottis almost nearly touches the soft palate, making infants obligate nasal breathers. This is especially important as nasal passages can be obstructed from edema. Moving on to breathing, neonates have a very highly compliant chest wall and the natural inward recoil of the infant lung creates a propensity for atelectasis. Due to the highly compliant chest wall with poor elastic properties, the closing capacity of infant lung and functional residual capacity, meaning the balance between chest wall and lung, are very close together. Entities such as shock predispose children to have lung collapse, which can impair oxygenation and ventilation. Finally, I would like to highlight that oxygen consumption at birth is up to 7 milliliters per kilogram per minute, compared with the average adult, which is 4 milliliters per kilogram per minute. 
The significance of this is that the metabolic cost of respiration work is significantly higher in the infant and can account for up to 15% of total oxygen consumption. Thank you for highlighting these key features. And to summarize, there are inherent differences in lung chest wall dynamics, oxygen metabolism, and respiratory musculature, which place the small infant at having lower physiologic reserve compared to the older child. Wrapping up this section with C, which stands for cardiac, Dr. Wolf, as a cardiac intensivist, I would love to hear how you approach the unstable neonate who you particularly suspect has circulatory compromise. This is one of my favorite aspects of neonatal shock to talk about. Let's take it back to intrauterine and extrauterine transitions immediately following birth. Key events in the transition from fetal to neonatal circulation include a rapid fall in pulmonary vascular resistance, closure of the foramen ovale, and constriction of the ductus arteriosus. In the presentation of many cyanotic heart lesions, closure of the ductus arteriosus has severe detrimental effects to the patient's overall status. In general, closure of the ductus arteriosus decreases systemic perfusion. I would like to highlight some very important congenital cardiac lesions in which initiation of prostaglandins to keep the ductus arteriosus open is absolutely imperative. These include, but are not limited to, hypoplastic left heart syndrome, critical coarctation of the aorta, interrupted aortic arch, and critical aortic stenosis. These lesions in and of themselves can be separate discussions. However, I do want to highlight that in general, when I think about the neonatal myocardium, it has overall less contractile potential than the older child or the adult myocardium. The sarcoplasmic reticulum is functionally immature and cannot provide sufficient systolic calcium. As highlighted in our case, our patient has severe tachycardia. The dependence on heart rate to maintain stroke volume and reliance on calcium to drive contractility are key components to obtaining adequate cardiac output. This is a great point and highlights a key management pearl initiation of prostaglandins, as well as calcium administration for the neonatal myocardium to really drive contractility. Dr. Wolf, if you were to broaden your differential on etiologies of neonatal shock, what would be the key classifications of pathogenesis? Apart from congenital heart disease, it is important for the intensivist to consider other categories of shock. Hypovolemic shock from fetomaternal hemorrhage, intracranial hemorrhage, or even non-hemorrhagic causes of hypovolemic shock, such as necrotizing enterocolitis, should also be considered. Obstructive entities, such as severe pulmonary hypertension, whether anatomic or the inability to relax the pulmonary vasculature upon extrauterine transition, can be life-threatening, and it is important to consider these in the differential of neonatal shock. Finally, and most importantly, it's always important to consider a broad differential of septic shock, as we are taught sepsis, sepsis, sepsis in the neonate with shock. Dr. Wolf, this is a great summary of the initial stabilization of the neonate. Let's transition to a focused evaluation, including initial lab testing and imaging. What is your basic approach to the unstable neonate? 
A quick and important initial evaluation is a blood gas and glucose determination. Inadequate intake, limited glycogen stores, and an increase in glucose utilization during stress states can lead to clinically significant hypoglycemia. Hypoglycemia should be rapidly treated with one gram per kilogram of dextrose. Other labs to send include basic electrolytes, CBC, lactate, blood cultures, and type and cross, especially if the child is heading down the path to becoming initiated on ECMO. One important element which I would like to highlight is to truly use your vital signs and clinical exam to act quickly to stabilize the child prior to all of your labs resulting. The early use of prostaglandin infusions to reestablish systemic blood flow may be life-saving in infants with left-sided obstructive lesions, such as hypoplastic left heart syndrome or coarctation of the aorta. For infants with these lesions on prostaglandins, avoidance of pulmonary overcirculation and decreasing systemic circulation can be achieved by maintaining arterial oxygen saturations between 75 and 85%. Strategies to achieve this balance including avoiding use of supplemental oxygen, tolerating mild hypercarbia, and maintaining hematocrit between 40 and 45% can be helpful. And so just to summarize for our listeners, as the neonate presents in extremis, it is very important to recognize subtle trends in clinical exam and your advanced monitoring. And the loop that we should have as intensivists is intervention and reassess. And this is imperative as you acutely stabilize a child with neonatal shock. Dr. Wolf, what are some other key diagnostics which you would include as we wrap this section up? First and foremost, obtaining four-extremity blood pressures and feeling for low-extremity pulses. That can be diagnostic very early in the course. Measurement of pre- and post-ductal saturations can be helpful. Performance of a focused bedside echocardiogram can serve to help diagnose the issue in the newborn with cyanotic congenital heart disease. In terms of history, it's important to delve into prenatal screening. As many cases of congenital heart disease are detected prior to delivery, there may be a subset which may be missed, and thus a cardiac entity in the setting of decreased systemic perfusion should always be considered. Two take-home points for these unstable neonates. Not only is it important to consider congenital heart disease, but there may be concurrent entities such as hypovolemia and underlying sepsis, which are important to concomitantly assess and treat. Dr. Wolf, our final portion of this podcast today will focus on management. We have already highlighted some key features. However, do you have a framework which you would like to highlight for our listeners? Some subtle points regarding prostaglandins. As patients are being transferred to a center of expertise, the initial dose of prostaglandins is 0.03 to 0.05 micrograms per kilogram per minute. In cases where the ductus arteriosus has begun to constrict or close, the dose of prostaglandins can be increased to a maximum dose of 0.1 micrograms per kilogram per minute. The risk of apnea increases with increasing doses of prostaglandin infusions. Intubation equipment should be immediately available because apnea can occur at any time during the infusion. In a retrospective study of 300 infants with ductal-dependent congenital heart disease who underwent transport on prostaglandins, three-quarters of those in the study were intubated prior to transport. 
almost 50% of those intubated were intubated electively, 20% because of respiratory failure that occurred prior to the starting of the prostaglandin infusion, and only 5% because of apnea that occurred after starting prostaglandins. Finally, infants with cyanotic ductal-dependent lesions managed with prostaglandin infusions are at increased risks of developing necrotizing enterocolitis. The mechanism likely involves compromised mesenteric perfusion resulting from the compound effects of cyanosis and low diastolic blood pressure. Thus, necrotizing enterocolitis is not an adverse effect of prostaglandins per se, but rather a consequence of maintaining a patent ductus arteriosus. Thank you for highlighting a key point, apnea and risk of necrotizing enterocolitis with the use of prostaglandins is important to consider. If we look at the broad differential besides congenital heart disease, Dr. Wolf, what other considerations would you provide in an unstable neonate? Sepsis is an important consideration in the differential diagnosis of a neonate presenting with cyanosis, particularly if the infant is ill-appearing. As a result, unless another specific etiology is promptly identified, broad-spectrum antibiotics should be initiated after obtaining the appropriate cultures. Infusions of inotropes such as epinephrine or dobutamine are often required for myocardial support as well as optimizing intracellular calcium. Finally, I would like to highlight the role of cardiac catheterization in certain scenarios. Cardiac catheter interventions can either be palliative by improving cyanosis or be corrective by relieving obstruction to flow. For example, a balloon atrial septostomy can relieve marked cyanosis in patients with detransposition of the great arteries associated with a restrictive atrial septum and restrictive shunting and mixing of arterial and venous blood. In patients with a left-sided obstructive congenital heart disease with a restrictive atrial septum, a balloon atrial septostomy can relieve severe pulmonary congestion. Selected patients with pulmonary atresia or pulmonary stenosis are candidates for balloon valvuloplasty if the obstruction is membranous. The tricuspid valve annulus and right ventricular size are adequate to support a two-ventricle repair and the coronary circulation does not depend upon the right ventricle. To summarize, key aspects of management, prostaglandin initiation, airway support, ionotropes, and the assessment of therapeutic cardiac catheterization at a very specialized center. Dr. Wolf, we appreciate your insights on today's podcast. As we wrap up, would you mind highlighting your personal clinical pearls? Number one, Always think about prostaglandins when approaching the neonate with shock. You can almost never go wrong by starting prostaglandins in a situation where there is a neonate presenting with cardiogenic shock. Number two, use your physical exam. Checking lower extremity pulses and checking four extremity blood pressures can often be diagnostic in these situations. Number three, the use of a focused rapid bedside echocardiogram can often help with the diagnosis of the neonate in shock. To summarize our discussion today, we discussed the importance of a broad differential, highlighted key presentation features of congenital heart disease, and finally underscored some important management principles, really emphasizing the use of early prostaglandins. This concludes our episode today on the unstable neonate. 
We are grateful to Dr. Michael Wolf for his expertise on this topic. We hope you found value in this short podcast. We welcome you to share your feedback and place a review on our podcast. PQ Doc on Call is hosted by me, Pradeep Kamath, and my co-host, Dr. Rahul Dimenia. Stay tuned for our next episode. Thank you.